Hi, welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. I'm Rebecca White. Considering risks for pregnant women with diseases like Zika and Ebola, many are naturally worried about coronavirus and the impact it could have on them and their baby. We catch up with maternal and newborn health expert, Professor Joy Lorne, on what we can learn from previous outbreaks and what's known so far about COVID-19 and pregnancy. Welcome to the podcast, Joy. Thank you, Rebecca. It's wonderful to be part of this. So I think to kick off, an important question is to ask, are pregnant women really at risk at this time? And does stage of pregnancy make a difference? Yeah, thanks. So all around the world, there are about 140 million women who are pregnant each year. And the advice at the moment is if you're pregnant, you should be treating yourself as a vulnerable person. So why is that? Well, when a woman is pregnant, she effectively has a foreign body, a baby within her. And so her immune system has to be altered to manage that. Otherwise, the baby wouldn't be able to to grow and, uh, and stay healthy. So both women and also their babies are more vulnerable to infections. Uh, and we know that. And it depends on what stage of pregnancy the woman is at. It depends on what the infection is. And it also depends a little bit on whether she had other health problems. What evidence do we have on viruses in pregnancy based upon previous outbreaks? For example, Zika and Ebola. Uh, what do we know already? Yeah, so if you're early in pregnancy and you have an infection, it's possible for that infection to alter the actual uh, structural formation of your baby. So we call that a teratogenic effect. It's, it's having a major effect, for example, on the baby's brain structure, which was the, the result that Zika had. Um, or, for example, other viruses such as rubella during that early stage of pregnancy can result in a, a classic triad of, of deafness and eye cataracts and, and heart problems. What we know from other coronavirus uh, infections and and including in SARS is that it's less likely that this infection has uh, a teratogenic effect or a major structural effect early in pregnancy. Uh, But honestly, we haven't had it for nine months yet. So it will be important. For example, in, in Zika, you know, almost certainly there were uh, cases that were missed on and, and having causes of babies with microcephaly and so on until surveillance got better. We need to be aware that although we're not anticipating that, this is something that needs to be looked out for uh, when we come to, you know, nine months uh, after this epidemic and pandemic has, has started. Thinking about those viruses, obviously they're very harmful where there's a big impact known on mother and baby. What do we know from perhaps the other end of the spectrum about viruses that are perceived as being a little less harmful, say the common cold or the flu? Is there any data from those that we could use to help us understand the impact of COVID on pregnancy? Yeah, that's really important. So flu, if you have flu, particularly severely in in early pregnancy, can result in miscarriages and women get it more severely. But the biggest kind of data we have is for flu later in pregnancy. Um, And that's why pregnant women are advised to get the flu vaccine, because flu later in pregnancy has a a risk of preterm birth and also of stillbirths. So very important in this uh, covid 19 epidemic to remember that stillbirths are often omitted from data collection and as well as looking for what happens to the woman and whether she has preterm birth with COVID, we also need to be thinking about stillbirth. 
So from what you've said there, it really does sound like it is important for women to be um, isolating and protecting themselves right now. And from the data that we have, we know that women in their 20s, 30s, uh, who are mostly the women who are giving birth, have less risk overall. Um, so it's particularly applicable to those who get severe disease. We have early data to suggest there is a, an increased risk of preterm. Uh, birth if you get a severe infection. At the moment, we have very limited data about the possibility of mother-to-child transmission. Uh, so the early data from China uh, suggests that in a very small number of cases, this may be happening, but we still need more work on this. And, uh, you know, particularly there's lots of kind of crossover with is the baby actually being infected afterwards and and so on. So I think, I think the jury's still out on how much of a risk it is, but it's likely at least to be a, a, a small possible risk. In terms of the, the process of labour, birth and indeed breastfeeding, um, how is COVID-19 affecting this for women and their families currently? Yeah, so I, I think very importantly, there are direct effects. So women who are positive for the virus and particularly those who are symptomatic, having to be isolated, the people who look after them are going to be in full protective gear. Uh, so it, it is going to change the experience as well as your actual risk. So uh, this is being you know, change daily. So the guidelines in the UK, the um, UK government, and also the Royal Colleges of Obstetrics and, and Midwifery have been putting out guidelines. In the US, there have been a lot of useful guidelines, particularly from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And there's a huge amount of variability already. So some guidelines are trying to separate uh, the, the mother and the baby immediately, even put the mother in full PPE for her to breastfeed. At the moment, WHO are recommending that if, as long as the woman is not seriously unwell, uh, that the baby should be with her. Obviously, you need to be uh, looking out for the condition of the mother and looking out for the condition of the baby. But really importantly, we've had, you know, decades of improving respectful care for women, being able to have a companion at birth, having the mother and the baby kept together, the importance of breastfeeding. The babies who are preterm looking at kangaroo mother care and in the whole context of COVID, all these behaviours and health system practices are at risk. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, and touching on that, what are those main differences in low middle income countries versus the high income countries? And how can we ensure there's safe maternal health for all? In this setting where, you know, maybe a, a woman is tested positive and particularly in low and middle income countries, you need to bear in mind that the, the testing is even more limited. I mean, we have problems with testing all over the world at the moment. Uh, so in many situations, we're not going to know if the woman is tested or not. We're going to have to go back to what we saw in, in kind of the early days of the HIV epidemic, where we went on, on I was working in West Africa in, in the 90s, and we had to go on a syndromic diagnosis. So if we have a woman who we suspect is um, is infected, she's symptomatic, she meets a syndromic diagnosis, well, we're going to have to 
you know, think carefully about the, the balance of risks for her and, and for that baby. But if, if what we do is go to the extreme where we're, you know, locking women up, assuming we actually have space for isolation and, and putting babies uh, elsewhere, that's also going to have collateral damage for babies who are not being breastfed or getting in infections from within hospitals. So I, I think this needs really active implementation learning that is rapid to understand how we manage this uh, and how we do the right thing, both for women and for babies and also for health workers. So is there a risk there around women not going into hospitals, maybe because of the fear of contracting an infection? And do you think that likely to happen with this infection? Ebola had a, a major risk for, for pregnant women. And in fact, there were very few babies who were infected who survived. And we're not in that situation uh, with, with COVID. There is some risk, but that the risk, uh, at least as far as we know from, from uh, the Chinese data and from, from data coming out of the US, the, the risk for death, the direct effect is, is lower. The indirect effect uh, is going to be huge. And that indirect effect is going to be while the epidemic is, is happening. We know from the Ebola days that uh, women come less to hospital to give birth. So currently we have just reached this fantastic world event where uh, around 80% of births worldwide are in hospitals and it's taken us a long time to get there. And, and we risk a backward uh, step where women uh, and families and societies don't, don't trust hospitals anymore. They see them as places of death. And we're already you know, hearing this. We have a, a trial in Uganda that uh, has had to, had to stop. And we already know that you know, there are less births happening in, in these hospitals. Women are not coming in. So during the epidemic time period, especially in hospitals that are, are seen as, as places that are dealing with the epidemic, you know, women are less likely to come. Their families are less likely to let them come. And that doesn't switch off as soon as the epidemic stops. We saw, we saw this after Ebola. And we know that it will take time for trust to come back. And there are some things, other con health conditions during the epidemic that, that may reduce. So accidents in children maybe will go down. It's possible that violence against women and violence against children will go up. But complications during pregnancy wait for no pandemic. Women will still be having complications uh, when they're giving birth. They'll be having less antenatal care. You know, we already know people are not coming for, for routine antenatal visits. There may be more complications at the time of birth with less services for these. And then the same for babies. So babies who are born preterm die within minutes. Uh, and if your, your ward has, has less people on it, if you're giving birth at home instead of in the hospital, that this is going to be uh, a real challenge for families. If there's anyone pregnant listening or anyone who knows someone who's pregnant, would your advice to them be to continue going to their appointments and to continue going to hospitals? Well, one of the, the good things about this epidemic is it's forced us into much more flexible care. So all over the world, we're, we're flipping to phone checkups. Uh, so I know in the UK, there's been a rapid pivot to routine antenatal visits being done virtually. 
in low and middle income countries, this, this is challenging. I know that in some places in South Africa, this is starting to happen. And there are fantastic mobile platforms, such as in South Africa, there's the national platform of Mum Connect. Uh, and I believe they're already incorporating messages around this, uh, you know, keeping your routine visits. I, I think that looking at what we do for, for the time of birth, so, you know, in, in the UK, that there has been a rapid pivot to, to how we do this. So initially, the advice was you weren't allowed to have your companion there. And I'm really delighted to say that the Royal College of Midwifery and uh, the Royal College of Ops and Gynae has, has now reversed that and allowing to have a companion with you. But ideally, this is in a, a negative pressure room. The companion then is, is not allowed to leave that room. Uh, so, for example, midwives in the UK are, are now, you have one midwife, you know, who's, who's in PPE coming in and out of this uh, room. They're also having to bring food for the, the companion, you know, look after the woman. Um, and then, for example, if, if there's, uh, the baby may need resuscitation, instead of having two midwives in the room, you have a midwife waiting outside already in full PPE um, and should the baby need resuscitation then this second midwife will rush in. So that this has already pivoted within a couple of weeks uh, within the UK but is going to be hugely challenging you know for places where we don't have rooms where you are don't isolate I mean you have six or seven women laboring in one room you have one midwife looking after several you know this, this is not going to be we can't translate just you know just drop these guidelines into low and middle income countries so there are WHO is, is really moving fast on this the World Health Organization and and we need ways to share so uh, across a, a number of the big Groups that I'm working with, the, the Newborn Essential Technologies and Solutions Nest. We have a full country network rapidly developing and adapting guidelines with, you know, with the four country governments and trying to share these. And of course, the challenge for PPE and, and you know, what people have to protect health workers is really a critical issue during labour as well. And, and so you began touching on research there. I mean, what are the current gaps in knowledge with regards to COVID-19 and pregnancy and which areas do you think should be seen as a priority for research right now? So we have some information that we can translate from the SARS epidemic in 2003. But I would say one of the lessons learned from that is we had an epidemic. There were some data, there was some learning, and then, you know, the world's attention moved off. Uh, so even some of the things we started to learn, for example, about, you know, why a, a, a babies and children may be spared, both in SARS and in COVID, uh, you know, the kind of why not questions we have failed to move forward on. So I would say that, you know, the world's attention is on this. It's remarkable the amount of innovation in practice. It's also remarkable how, how well people are trying to coordinate on the research gaps. We need urgent attention to having core data sets for how we measure the outcome for the woman, for stillbirths, for preterm births, for the newborn. Uh, how we look also at the immunology of uh, vertical transmission or transmission immediately after birth and how we understand that and what to do. We, we need uh, ways to collaborate. So what we're learning on safety and, and here we have three people at play. We have the mother, the baby, the worker, and I guess also the family. We want to have partners and, and support there. 
Uh, so we have a mix of people there. We're always going to have trade-offs in that. And there's a risk that we go so far in wanting to protect that actually we get more collateral damage. Uh, so in high-income countries, I think a lot of that collateral damage will be in the experience and mental health and the trauma and less support. You know, I, I know beautiful midwives who are working at the moment and they say that the whole experience of how they support a woman through birth is just different if you're completely cloaked up and in a mask and they can't see your face and, and it's not the same. I think we... So that when we start to come out of this, we're quickly able to understand how to get trust back and working uh, and how to make sure uh, that we don't undo fantastic progress for maternal health care, respectful care and care for every woman and, and every baby around the world. Uh, it's heartbreaking to think of things that we've worked for, for for decades. You know, we need to make sure that we use those. I, I guess the positive side is we have an opportunity to make the case that the vulnerable baby at birth, the woman in labour, are a, a signal of, of health system challenges. And investing in those and making that work is really critical both during this pandemic, because this will happen every day. Women and babies will be at risk every day, uh, but how we also ensure that after this pandemic. Yeah, thank you. That's a really, really important point and something we're hearing quite a lot around making sure those systems are in place. So I wanted to pivot onto obviously a big topic right now is around vaccines. I mean, is it possible to deliver vaccines during pregnancy and are pregnant women being considered as these vaccines are being developed for COVID-19? We've already got a whole lot of vaccines moving rapidly into different phases of treatment. Uh, the Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust have done a fantastic job with WHO. Uh, the London School, the Vaccine Centre have a, a vaccine tracker up online. And traditionally, when we do vaccine trials, part of the ethical protection is often to exclude women, particularly vulnerable populations, and that's often considered to be women who are pregnant and, and newborns and children. Um, during the Ebola vaccine, this was a big debate because actually the most at risk, both from Ebola and indirect effects of Ebola on the health system, were pregnant women and small babies. So there have been uh, ethical frameworks put in place to say you know, pregnant women, babies, children should not be excluded from these vaccine trials. I think you can have those frameworks, but there's still on, understandably a tendency for those who run ethical committees to be conservative and that's their job. But I, I really hope that during this pandemic and as we go forward with solutions, um, that importantly in these trials, we intentionally include those who are most vulnerable and that includes pregnant women and children. How can pregnant women best protect themselves and their babies during this pandemic? And where can they go for information? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, the thing that all of us need to do is to be doing the basic public health messages. So, uh, you know, try to avoid the infection where we can. So hand washing, uh, masks, isolation. Um, going for information, I, I think avoiding misinformation is, is critical. So pregnancy is always a time of, of fear and hope. 
that wonderful mix. You know, we all have our, our dreams and our hopes, but also our fears. This time of pandemic is a time of huge fear for, for everybody, anxiety. Uh, anybody who's not anxious uh, must be abnormal at the moment. So I think there are extra anxieties for those who, who are pregnant, doing the things that you need to do, that you should do for your your own health, your mental health for your baby, preparing yourself. So we always talk about preparedness in low and middle income countries that applies everywhere. So, you know, have, having your plan and maybe in high income countries, our plan is kind of our water birth or whatever, which are all banned at the moment. So, you know, thinking about what's most important to you, talking it through with others, getting information from reliable sources, voicing your fears and talking to others. And I think we, we rely often on peer support of other pregnant women or women who have walked that way before. And, you know, we're the first group of uh, women around the world who, who are pregnant in a pandemic situation for you know, a century. So a century ago, it was very different. Um, there are virtual groups uh, join virtual groups that are helpful. You know, if people are being unhelpful or really going off-piste and not evidence-based, yeah, don't be afraid to, to leave that conversation. If there's something you're particularly concerned about, reach out to, to your midwife, reach out to someone you know you can trust. And, and at the end of this, remember, for, you know, for most people, you know, this is going to be a time of anxiety, but it will be fine for most people. Thank you so much, Joy. Really useful advice and, and a reassuring note to end on. Thanks so much for being part of our podcast. Thank you. That was Professor Joy Lawn discussing all the latest insights relating to COVID-19 and pregnancy. We are holding another Q&A session on modelling during the COVID-19 outbreak on Friday the 1st of May. We want to know your questions, so please get in touch with us and we will try and answer them in the session. You can contact us on comms at lshtm.ac.uk. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Share the podcast with your colleagues, your friends and anyone who you think would be interested. Thanks again for listening and take care.